In verses 1 6 through 16, we'll read as it uh, to begin. This is uh, the last uh, part or the last leg, if you will, of Paul's journey uh, into uh, to Rome. Uh, verses 1 through 7, we will begin reading. And when they were escaped, they knew that, that, that the isle was called Malta, and the barbar, barbarous people uh, showed us no little kindness. That's kind of a reverse way of saying things, and they showed us a lot of kindness. Now, sometimes, I'm going to say this as a side note, the barbarous just means these were very barbarian, just very uncouth type people. And from time to time, King James will get criticisms about, well, it says, of no little kindness. Why don't you just say, a lot of kindness? Because in the Greek, it says, no little kindness. I want a translation, not an interpretation. Okay, because once you start that, where does it end? Alright, for they kindled a fire and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when uh, the barbarians saw the uh, venomous beast hanging on his hand, uh, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. So in a sense, they believed in a karma type of thing. They said, well, he's come out of the sea, but obviously this poisonous snake has bitten him. So he, and, and they knew that with the soldiers, they knew it was a prison ship. So, you know, they knew these were all prisoners somehow. Uh, even if they didn't understand the language, they understood how they were being watched. And so they figure, well, this guy, this guy is a murderer. And uh, in these verses, uh, we see the divine protection and the promise of God. And when he shook off the beast into the fire uh, and felt no harm, albeit they looked, and when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Well, you know, uh, they love this verse in Appalachia. I, I preached this uh, years ago in Appalachia and uh, pastored in the mountains and uh, one and was talking about the snake handlers because there are snake handlers. I mean, that is not folklore. That is not a joke. They do that up there. Because there are verses in Mark and Luke, if any venomous beast will bite you, it will not harm you. And this is an example of God's protection upon the apostle. And he is bitten by a venomous snake, a poisonous snake, and it does not bother him. I had this one fellow, uh, Brother uh, Fugate, come up afterwards and he said, he came up before the church. He said, do I need to repent? I said, are you handling snakes? He said, no, but I'm collecting. He said, yeah, but... No, and I said, what? He goes, I'm collecting them and selling them to the Pentecostal church up the road. Is that right? And I said, well, are you getting good money for them? 
<laughs> I said, I don't know if that's right or not. I will tell the church, and the church just uh, went on about it. But, but Paul wasn't looking to handle a snake. One came out after him. And uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, trust myself uh, with all that anyway. Uh, and, and by the way, just so you know, I know, and the people up there know, they milk those snakes before those services. All right. And the same, or, or, they, or they, they take enough of it to, uh, you know, keep themselves, you know, inoculated. In the same uh, quarters were uh, possessed of the chief men of the island, whose name was Publius, who uh, received us and lodged us three days. And so uh, there they are, uh, courteously. They were kind to them, and they they lodged them. They put them up for, for three days, and we see that Paul being protected, and the chief among them did this. And it came to pass that further Publius lay sick, I'm sorry, the father of him lay sick in a fever and, uh, and a bloody fox, dysentery is what that is describing, dysentery, uh, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. And when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the isle, came and were healed. Now, by the way, uh, the Lord certainly used the apostles to heal. The Lord can and does still heal today, but he doesn't give the gift of healing. Now, that is not to say that uh, men can get together and pray, or women and and pray over somebody and God not heal them. I've, I've seen that happen in, in a way that it was God. But that gift is not is not seen. If it was seen, then they wouldn't be charging to get it done. They would just go clean out the hospitals. And I, I remember the big, big park uh, in Kentucky and in Lexington, which uh, for two weeks allowed public speaking and so forth, a, church, a group of men, a group of men, we had a, a small tent revival. Well, I mean, relatively small. It was three or 400 compared to the others. R.W. Schambach, or Scambach, however you want to say it, was on the other side with, with a couple thousand. And we had a little girl, and we had a mother come to ours and push a little girl in a wheelchair. And she said, uh, now how much would you pray, pay? How much would it cost you? How much would it cost us to do, to... Uh, for you to pray for them, and it cost income. And we got talking to her. They got the big tent, and so anybody that comes up to the big tent and says, oh, I got a brain tumor or lung cancer or something on the inside, then they get put in line, and they come down in front of the big tent. But now if you've got a child that's, that's, that's crippled in a wheelchair, then you go over to the little tent. But the, just the healers are over there, and they maxed out her credit card. And told her that if she had faith that they would do it. They maxed out this woman's credit cards. And that night I sat and helped her dispute the charges. And, and got those credit cards taken off. Let me tell you something. Uh, uh, the gift of God is not to be bought with silver and gold. A man already was killed for that assumption in the book of Acts. Okay? And let me say this. 
More times than not, it refers to the faith of the one doing the healing versus the faith of the one that's being healed. How much faith do you think that this this uh, barbarian, uh, who could probably not even speak and communicate with Paul, doesn't talk about Paul preaching the gospel, they may not be able to even communicate. He lay sick, Paul came and healed him. I don't know that if it's true or not. I mean, he may have preached the gospel. But my point is, it's the faith of the healer. If God's given you a gift to do it, you've got that gift. You've got that gift. And so we see divine healing in verses 8 and 9. Uh, we see that they, they were appreciative, uh, who also uh, honored us with many honors. And when we were departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. That's the description of the honor. They didn't give him a badge. <laughs> or a medal, honor means that they gave him food, they gave him necessity. And at three, and after three months, well, that's a while, isn't it? After three months, we departed in a ship. We're not going to go anymore sailing to this winter. We're either going to wait here. We're going to winter here. A ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the, uh, in the isle, whose uh, sign... Uh, was a caster of, of a Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. Now Paul is on his way to Rome. He has landed in Italy. Syracuse is in Italy. And so he is approaching Rome, and we find uh, that's what they, they're doing. Verse 14, 13, and from thence we fetched, well, it must have been from the south, uh, we fetched a... Uh, a compass and came uh, to Ringham and uh, after one day the south wind blew we came the next day uh, to Pudila, uh, that's horrible I, you know I do better when they don't separate it, when they just stick it together instead of trying to help me, I, 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 I never could do that uh, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. So look here, they're greeted by the brethren. And these brethren desired that they tarry with them. And they did. They waited with them seven days. They, they were on the lookout for them. I don't know how they had word that, that came ahead. But they obviously were on the lookout for Paul. And from thence... Uh, when the brethren heard of us, uh, they came to meet us as far as Apollonia Rome and uh, these uh, three taverns. Now, now the word tavern means an inn. Uh, uh, in that day, uh, it was, you know, an old uh, tavern was, it was kind of a restaurant slash inn. You know, you, you had a public restaurant area where the people that stayed there ate, but people that were passing through ate, but it also had rooms. Okay, we think of tavern, we automatically think of a bar. Well, I, I don't know what this, every tavern, but, but that's not what a tavern is in, the, in this old English. Uh, not that they don't have alcohol, but that's not the point of a tavern. But it'd probably be best to say in. We could say bed and breakfast today, really. But, yeah, but a general breakfast, anybody who's coming through. Whom, when Paul saw, 
he thanked God and took courage. Now, I, I, I want to say this before we, before we pass on into the next verses. The kindness of the brethren meeting him and them staying together caused Paul to thank God for that and it gave him courage. We today call it encouragement, to courage, to instill courage. Even Paul, I'm sure he's weary. I'm sure he's tired. I'm sure he's afraid. He knows he's going to Rome, but that's about all he knows. And, this, and uh, he knows when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. Then when he gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested. He knows he's going to Rome. He don't know the end of the story. Uh, but uh, uh, God uses us to encourage each other. Well, the Lord will encourage him. God uses people to encourage. When we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the chapter, captain of the guard. Paul was suffered to dwell by himself. He was allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And so... Uh, we know, according to Philippians, that this is part of the Praetorian Guard. And uh, more than likely, uh, he's chained to him at this time. Now, there's different expansions in Paul's time. Sometimes he's chained to a guard. Sometimes he's left a little freedom. I'm sure at this time, till somebody says that he's chained to this guard. And I've said uh, so often, not only is Paul chained to this guard, but this guard's chained to Paul. And so this, the, 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 he, we know according to Philippians that this is an elite man that he's chained to. This is one who is of Caesar's detail. And so this man will eventually come across Caesar. Maybe Caesar says, hey, I heard last week you were with that prisoner, Paul. So uh, in verses 17 uh, through 20, he greets, he's allowed, he's allowed people to talk with. He greets himself to the Jews, to the Jewish leadership. Let me say again, there is no, the salvation of a Jew or a Gentile, neither one is more valuable to God. But Jesus is of the tribe of is of the tribe of Judah of Israel. He sent out twelve Jewish apostles, and the apostle Paul said that the gospel is to be offered to the Jew first, and thank God also to the Gentile, to the Greek, and that has been Paul's way of operating in every city and every location that he is in. He is to make it offerable to the lost house of to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then he goes to the Gentile. That's the recipe that Jesus gave in the early part, first Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's how Paul operates through that. Again, uh, that not meaning more important, but we are engrafted into their covenant. It's their covenant. And we're engrafted and we're spiritually Part of it. We were once aliens. Now we're fellow citizens. 
but it's it's to go to the house of Israel first, and that's what he does. So he, in verse 17, came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And so uh, there's multiple, there's several of them, the leadership, and when they were come together, he said unto them, men and brethren, now, I want to stop here for just a second, and I want to say something, I'm kind of off the subject, but on the subject. None of these men are saved right now. He calls them brethren. Now, there is a lot of bad interpretation out of the book of Hebrews when the author, when the author of Hebrews is calling certain people brethren and saying, well, see, there's, this is a group of saved people. He's calling his Jewish brethren, brethren, whether lost or saved throughout Hebrews, just as Paul is calling these men who have not heard much of the gospel yet his brethren. They are brethren according to the flesh. And there's a lot of bad interpretation in Hebrews that could be cleaned up if you understand that the that Hebrews is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews to tell them to quit being Hebrews, start being Christians, but he calls them and addresses them as his brethren. Uh, uh, brethren, though I have uh, committed no, committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, it was constrained, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar that I had ought to uh, accuse uh, uh, that ought uh, ought to have accused my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Jesus is the king of Israel. He's the king of the Jews. He is the hope of Israel, of the true Israel of God which come through that. And he just said, look, I didn't do anything against the temple. I didn't do anything to come. I'm just preaching the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. I'm preaching the consolation of Israel. I'm preaching what the prophets and the fathers taught us. And so he introduces himself. Then he goes into his subject matter. And here's where the And they said, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, here we find uh, the Jews here. And they said unto him, the interest of the Jews. They said unto him, we neither receive letters out of Judea or concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came, showed, or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear thee that thou wouldest, thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, Christians, we know that everywhere it is, it is spoken against. And so we want to hear you because every group of Jews that we've talked to that's encountered them from every area doesn't have anything good to say about it. 
So you tell us. This is where he goes. This is where the where he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And when they had appointed him a day, so not at that moment, there came a day later, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded. The word expound we can bring as to exegete. He read the scripture and gave, as Ezra did in the book of Nehemiah, he gave the, he read the word distinctively, gave the sense and the meaning of what Israel ought to do. And so that's what Bible preaching is, is teaching the Bible. It's saying, here's what it's saying. Okay? This is what it's meaning. And this is what you need to do. <laughs> it's got all three components. He expounded and testified the king testified the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening he spent all day long proving to them that the promised king of Israel, the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God, God's king has come and his kingdom has come. And he taught it from Moses and he taught it from all of the prophets. He preached to them concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the realm of salvation. Everything comes under God's rule and dominion. Everything does, but the kingdom of God that he's referring to and the God or the goodness of the kingdom that he deals with later is the spiritual realm of God's rule. Now, in the Old Testament, you had a physical kingdom. You had a physical nation of Israel and everybody that was born an Israelite, circumcised, gone through the ritual, was a part of the physical kingdom. But within that physical kingdom, there was a spiritual assembly. There was a spiritual group that were called out and chosen because Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Not all physical parts of the Old Testament kingdom are part of the true Israel of God, the chosen of God. He gives illustration of that. Jacob have a loved and Esau have a hated. That being before they were born. You know? I mean, so not all are saved that are Jews. The Jews reading about the coming of the kingdom that Messiah is going to bring, they naturally are thinking in other, uh, an expansion of this physical kingdom. But in the New Testament, in this era, what do we have? The, the order's reversed. We had a physical kingdom with a spiritual assembly. Now, in this age, we have a spiritual kingdom. Everyone that is saved is entered into the kingdom of God. 
Jew and Gentile, we all make up God's rule, God's reign, God's dominion. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. But he rules and reigns from heaven, but he reigns in the hearts and the minds of the people of God. But on the earth, he still has an organization to preach the kingdom of God. And that is a physical assembly. This is a assembly. People talk about a universal church. And, uh, and uh, uh, that all that are saved are a part of the universal church. That is linguistically an impossibility. The word church means a assembly. You can't have a, a, a disordered assembly. Okay? But all that are saved are a part of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, not everybody that was a part of the kingdom was a part of the spiritual assembly. In the New Testament, not everybody that's part of the physical assembly is a part of the kingdom of God. Now, one day, I believe the two are going to come together in a physical realm and a spiritual realm. When Jesus comes, we're going to have a spiritual and physical kingdom around a spiritual and physical. And that's going to make up one assembly of his kingdom. You cannot, the kingdom of God, the, the assembly does not picture all of God's people because we're all scattered. But a kingdom can picture that. Just like the United Kingdom. You have parts here, you have parts here. It all just comes under, you have providences and so forth. It is a better picture. It is one that actually works. And so he preached this kingdom of God, persuading them, persuading them. The Apostle Paul preaching is persuasion. Teaching is informing. Preaching is informing with persuasion. I was talking to a friend the other day and they mentioned something and I said, well, you know, I watched a YouTube video on the drive back from Kentucky and I was mentioned, and they said, well, what was you watching? And I told them about it and they said, but that's on how to persuade people. Well, I know. What do you think the job of a preacher is? Am I supposed to just get up here and try to be unconvincing? You know? Now, I'm not trying to be manipulative. Manipulative and persuading are two different things. But Paul persuaded. Here it is. I've got to, op- I've got to grab attention and open ears and speak to minds. That's where it ends. Then God works in the hearts. But if they won't hear you because you're too bored or too angry, or you're too boring or too angry or whatever, too aloof, but he persuaded them concerning what? The law of Moses and of the prophets from morning to evening. He preached the word. He preached the word. And some believe the things which were spoken, and some believe not. And it's not. Paul is not a failure because some didn't believe. The believing 
Paul does the persuading. God does the enabling to believe. But there cannot be an enabling for belief until first there is a persuading to believe. There we go. I figured out when I do the arm, that's when it it, 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 it thinks I'm singling her. But, you know. Which is really bad for me because I wave my arms all the time. And I promise you, I never learned that off of anything. That's just natural. <laughs> if you tied my hands together, I wouldn't be able to preach. All right? So, uh, but the, uh, uh, the persuading here uh, and uh, of, the, of the kingdom of God, he's preached from the scriptures of the day. There was no book of Matthew. Luke is with him. He's recording this down, but the book of Luke hasn't been completed and published. There is. Paul has written some letters, like Galatians and so forth. There's some of those, but Paul's not going to quote himself. By the way, I, I, in, in conversation, and this is a, this is a, uh, we're going to get back to this kingdom of God. We're going to preach one more sermon on it, all right? Because it very much goes with eschatology. So don't worry. I can fly through the rest and we can come back next week to it, all right? A lot of people don't understand the future events and what we call revelation in the last time because they've never watched the first act of the play. I like what Alistair Begg says. The Bible is like a first act and a second act. The first act gives you all these prophecies that's going to happen in the, and all these things that are going to occur in the second. And it's like you walk in, and if you don't know the Old Testament, it's like you walk in during intermission, and then they play, and then they play the second act, and they're not explaining anything because they've already explained it in the first time. Well, I don't understand why they're doing that. Well, if you were here for the first part of the play, you would understand exactly why they're doing that. Well, I don't understand what these beasts are. and I don't understand what these beasts are with leopard's wings and all that. Daniel 7 explains that. You can't understand that chapter. You can't understand Revelation 11 unless you understand Daniel 7. You see, people just think that, that the Revelation's written about a bunch of stuff that's going to flung out into the future and we've got to figure it out what it's going to be. When actually the book of Revelation is answering the questions of the Old Testament. But you got to know the Old Testament to know it. When's the last days? When the king comes. Well, that's what that's why they told him in Genesis 49. Jacob called his men together and he said, Judah, you're, yeah, let me tell you what's going to happen in the last days. Somebody said, oh, I know what the last days are. The last days is when Jesus returns. No, the last days is when Jesus came. And we've been in the last days till he comes. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen in the last days, Judah. There's going to, there's going to rise a king and he, the sepulcher's not going to come out of his, out of his hand and he's going to ride on the colts into Jerusalem and they're gonna and they're gonna inaugurate him and, and then he's gonna wash his garments in the blood of grapes. You know? And so this kingdom here he is expressing it to him. But some believed, 
He's making an argument of the Old Testament for Moses from the prophets. And when they agreed not amongst themselves, they rejected and departed after that Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by, by Isaiah, the prophet unto our fathers, saying, go unto the people, say, hearing ye shall hear, and seeing ye shall not, I'm hearing ye shall not hear, and, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive, for the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they uh, closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and be understood with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. You see, he's saying this is the fulfillment of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, by the way. But be, be it known therefore unto you that sal the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles that they will hear it. We're not a plan B. Gentile salvation is not a, is not a backup plan. Amen. What was the promise to Abraham? Through thee I'll bless all the nations of the world. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning amongst themselves. Now look with me as we come on this last part here. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him. And what did he preach? He preached the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That's the message. The message is that of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist came on the scene and said, the kingdom of God is in him. Jesus came on the scene saying, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The apostles went out and preached, the kingdom of God is not here. Enter into the realm of God. Christ is come. His kingdom has come. It rules and it reigns forever. Now some will say, yes, but there is a future kingdom. There is a future kingdom. There is a future kingdom. Now, whether we're talking about the eternal kingdom or the millennial kingdom, there's a future kingdom. And we all believe there's going to be an eternal kingdom, okay? We'll just go with that. There's going to be an eternal kingdom, okay? There, there is going to be an eternal kingdom. But what good is an eternal kingdom if you have, un have unregenerated? if you don't have saved people to populate it. He said, well, he's going to bring this glorious kingdom. What good is a glorious kingdom without glorified subjects? See, salvation must happen first. The kingdom of God is advancing. 
That's the, when we go into the parables, that's what Jesus is continuously teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds. There's just 12, 13 of us. The man, when he grows, it, it grows to be the greatest. It's like leaven. It, 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 it permeates the loaf without you even noticing it. It's like wheat and tares. It's uh, within the outer kingdom of what people realize. There's going to be saved. There's going to be lost. Uh, uh, they're going to grow up together until uh, the end of time. The kingdom of heaven is going to be like, uh, uh, there's going to be those that associate with the kingdom that aren't a part of the kingdom. There's going to be, there's going to, it's, like the, it's, like, it's like 10 bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom to come. Ten, five of them are ready to go. They had their lands filled with oil, ready to make the procession back to the bridegroom's house. But the other five were foolish. They were absent-minded. They were, they, they were distracted. Uh, they were silly-hearted, literally. And they were absent-minded and silly-hearted. And they weren't ready when the bridegroom comes. And when the bridegroom came, he took the ones that were ready and they went back to the house. And the other ones, he shut them out. There's no salvation after the Lord returns. It's another reason why this bunch of uh, craziness out there that, you know, the Lord's going to return. We're all going to go up to heaven. And then everything's going to go back into a Jewish state and he's going to start saying, no, there's no, there's no second chances after the Lord returns. And there's no salvation given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. He's the eternal king. Daniel, Daniel talks about that. There'll be four kingdoms from Daniel's day, which was Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Then Rome will morph from a physical kingdom into a spiritual deception. Uh, and, and this will morph all of these times. It, they'll change the calendar. They've changed the calendar. And, and all they know. Oh, well, when does that kingdom end? And by the way, the word Catholic means universal, global. It talks about a global religion that is that looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. Well, when's that end? When the Ancient of Days comes. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, go ahead. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. They're all, they're all the same thing. The kingdom of the dragon, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, they're all the same thing. They are going together. But Paul didn't preach about all that. He preached to join the kingdom. How do you join the kingdom? It's the kingdom of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when a king comes, he takes his throne. Look with me back in Acts chapter 2 and we'll close up. And I think we, we may have preached enough on this but we'll start on something new next week. Because I could preach on the kingdom of God for a year so I don't know that we need another sermon. But well, I want to finish this up with Acts chapter 2. Point out a couple things about the kingdom of God and then we'll Dave, 
in Acts 2, he, he says in verse 2, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, man approved of God among you, by miracle signs and wonders, which God did in the midst of you, ye yourselves know, and him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, it's God that did it. Determined it. Ye have crucified by wicked hands, that's the Roman hands, have crucified. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And it is possible that death should hold in him. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always. My face, for he is on my right hand, that I shall not be moved. Now, skip down with me, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both buried and both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to, unto this day. Why is he making this point? Why is he going to convince us that David is dead and in the grave? I'll tell you in a minute. Therefore, being a prophet, and know that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. If you go back, and you can go back to, not right now, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. You know what you're going to find? David, while you're in the grave with your father, I'm going to raise up a seed after you and he is going to sit on your throne and he is going to rule the nation of Israel without him. And Peter says, David's dead. He's buried with us today. Now he lies in hope. Because you know God sworn to him with an oath that he was going to raise up Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the king. He, seeing this, spake of the resurrection of the dead, of Christ, that he should, that he was not left in hell. The word hell there means Shiloh, the grave. Neither has his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are of all witnesses. Therefore, being at the right hand of God exalted, and having received the promise of the Father, of the Holy Ghost, he hath uh, have shed forth his, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Master, Lord, King, and Christ. The King's gone. He's rolling and reigning from heaven. And he's rolling and reigning in the hearts of his people. Somebody, many times people say, now when Jesus comes, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. When Jesus comes, he's going to receive his kingdom. He, he set up his kingdom in his first. He initiated it. He's going to receive it when he returns. The message of the church 
is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same message. It's the same message. You can receive the king and the kingdom. And you know what? The king could come today. 